If you have been born of God, if you have experienced what Jesus called the new birth, then you have your new father's DNA. And if you have his DNA, then his character and conduct will imprint your own. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom Pennington's series titled The Christian's DNA. The Bible teaches that we as Christians have been adopted into the family of God as either a son or a daughter. Theologians call this spiritual concept the doctrine of adoption. This rich truth from Scripture is that God the Father has set His love upon a particular people and determined to adopt them into His family by His grace. The motivating factor behind God the Father's act of adoption? Well, it isn't because of any good or evil any of us have done, but solely from His great love for sinners through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you in God's family, friend? Is that your spiritual DNA? Let's join our teacher for more now, here on The Word Unleashed. Well, we have just begun the second cycle, or the second movement of the three tests of eternal life. John gives us these three tests to see whether or not we really belong to the Lord Jesus, and he cycles through those three tests three different times in this letter. He begins the second movement of the symphony, if you will, or, or the second path around the spiral staircase, looking at these three great tests, he begins the second test with the te- or the second movement, rather, with the test of obedience, just as he did the first. Do you obey Jesus Christ and His Word? That is a test of whether or not you're truly His. Now, in this section that I just read for you a moment ago, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3, we learn that our relationship to sin and righteousness shows our real birth. In essence, it shows whether we are dead in sin or born of God. Are we still the way we were as we came into this world, dead to God, dead in sin, in trespasses and sin, as Paul puts it to the Ephesians? Or have we experienced the new birth? Now, regeneration or the new birth is such an important issue that we stepped away from 1 John last week to to study in depth that great theme. But today we return again to John's letter and to the section, as I said, that we just read together, 1 John 2, verse 28, down through chapter 3, verse 3. We're learning here that a true Christian has been born of God and will therefore be like his father in his character and conduct, like father, like child. If you have been born of God, if you have experienced what Jesus called the new birth, then you have your new father's DNA. And if you have his DNA, then his character and conduct will imprint your own. Who he is And how he behaves will be reflected in how you think, how you speak, how you act day in and day out. Now, 
In this passage, John gives us several crucial insights into what it means then to be born of God. Two weeks ago, before we looked at regeneration, we looked at the first two of these insights. Just to remind you, we discovered then that if we have been born of God, our new birth will be certified at Jesus' revelation. Chapter 2, verse 28 says, when He comes, true believers will not be ashamed because we will have been born of God. On the other hand, those who are false believers, those who claim Christ but have not truly been changed, that will be manifest as well when Jesus comes. But we don't have to wait for the second coming for that to be manifest, for the return of Christ. Secondly, we learn that our new birth is confirmed now by our actions. Verse 29 says, if we know that the Father is righteous, that's what we discovered that He refers to, if we know that the Father is righteous, then we know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. The two go together, again, like Father, like Son. So, that's what we've discerned and studied so far. Today we come to a third insight about the new birth or regeneration, and it's this. Our new birth is followed by our adoption. Our new birth is followed by our adoption, and we discover this in chapter 3, verse 1. Read it with me. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are, for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him." Now, let me just warn you ahead of time that I had initially thought that I would do all three of these verses, verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3 in one message. It's not going to happen. I just want you to know that, and there's a good reason for it. I just couldn't get over the fact that this is one of the richest passages in the New Testament and certainly the richest passage in John's letter, and there is so much here for us to learn together. So, we're going to slow down and look at this a little more carefully. Now, in verse 1, just as John does in the first chapter of his gospel, he connects the new birth at the end of chapter 2 to our adoption as sons and daughters here at the beginning of chapter 3. Now, understand that they're not the same. God could have given you the new birth. He could have given you spiritual life and not adopted you as His son or daughter. Those are two different, distinct things. And next week, Lord willing, I'll show you even more so how they are distinct. But let me take you back to John's gospel, John chapter 1, and remind you that in verses 12 and 13, John clearly distinguishes between the new birth and adoption. Now, Again, I'm not going to walk through this entire passage again, but I'll just remind you, as we looked at it last time, we discovered that the first thing to happen in these verses is the new birth in verse 13, because the verb tense puts that before the receiving and the believing in verse 12. So the first thing to happen logically in the order of salvation is that you were born again, verse 13. You were given new life. You were dead, and God called you through the gospel and gave you new life. As we saw in Ezekiel 36, you came to life. Now, regeneration then 
is in verse 13, and it comes first. Then the one who is born of God, chapter 1, verse 12, believes or receives Christ. You'll notice he says, but as many as received him, and then he explains what it means to receive him, the end of the verse, even to those who believe in his name. So to receive Christ is to believe into his name, to trust in him as Savior and Lord. So we are given new life. Now, again, let me remind you that what I'm talking about isn't happening chronologically spread apart. Rather, we're talking about the logical order. They all happen at a moment in time, the moment of your salvation. But in that moment, there is a logical distinction, a logical order that follows. You say, does that matter? It matters. Think about it this way. The New Testament never says that justification comes before faith. It always says we are justified what? By faith. And yet faith and justification happen at the same moment in time. There is an important logical order in the mind of God, and therefore there needs to be an ours. The same thing is true with these things. So you were regenerated, you were given new life, then because of that, God gave you repentance and faith, and you believed, you received Christ. Only after you exercise faith are we, verse 12, given the right to become children of God. Notice, as many as received Him, as many as believed, only they have the right to become the children of God. That's adoption. So, you have regeneration, the new birth, new life given to you, then you believe, you receive Christ, and then you are adopted by God. So clearly there is a distinction. And again, we'll look next time and see there, there's a great reason, there are a great many reasons to see a distinction between the new birth and adoption. So regeneration then, or the new birth, is followed by in the same moment in time, but logically followed by a legal declaration in which God adopts us as His own children. Now, why does John go from the new birth at the end of chapter 2 to adoption in chapter 3? Because mentioning the new birth in chapter 2, verse 29, reminds John of the closely related blessing of adoption. John himself is captivated, as we'll see, by this concept of adoption, and he wants us to be as well. Also, it fits in the larger theme of this paragraph. At the end of chapter 2, John made the point that the new birth affects how we live. The same thing is true with adoption. Adoption, chapter 3, verse 2, ends with our glorification, with our being made like Christ. And if we have the hope of the finalizing of our adoption, then verse 3 of chapter 3, we will be pursuing holiness. So it fits in the theme of this paragraph, the test of obedience. So then, regeneration, or the new birth, as Jesus called it, is followed by our adoption. And John wants us to grasp just a little of the magnificence of this great truth of our adoption. And that's what I want us to look at together this morning. He begins by explaining in verse 1 the reason for our adoption, the reason for our adoption. Notice it is because of a love that the Father has bestowed. Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. As we prepare for the Lord's table, 
I just want to consider this this morning, the reason for our adoption. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the reality of our adoption, what it means, and, and really unpack those great truths. But this morning I just want us to think about why. What moved God to adopt us? There is only one reason in the universe that God has chosen to adopt us as His children, and verse 1 says it's His great love, His great love. The Greek word for love in verse 1 is the familiar Greek word agape. It's typically love that is not motivated by emotion, but rather is motivated by the will. God set His will on seeking our good and specifically on adopting us. We understand this even in the realm of adopting human parents, adopting children. He set His will on this adoption. Now, like our English word for love, the Greek word agape is used in a large variety of ways. It's used for everything from God's love for His own Son to the Pharisees' love for the chief seats at social events in the first century. So the nature of the love here is not determined by the meaning of the word agape, just like the English word love, but rather always by the context. And the context here tells us so much about this love. In fact, I would say it this way, chapter 3, verse 1 is filled with a number of rich truths about the love of God that moved Him to adopt us as His own sons and daughters. Let's look at those rich truths together. First of all, God's adopting love is a specific love. It is a specific love. It's very specific in its object. It is bestowed, notice, only on us. Not on the world at large, but on us. Now, whom does John mean by us? Well, he means all genuine Christians. That's why he includes himself in this description with his readers. He means all of those who pass the three tests of eternal life that we saw in the first cycle. Think of it this way. If you took those tests that we so far looked at in this letter, if you pass the test of faith in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel, if you pass the test of a life that is characterized by a pattern of obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word, if you pass the test of a pattern of love for God and a love for His people, if those things are in your life, not in perfection, but in direction, if they describe who you are, then John is talking here about you. You can be confident that God has bestowed His adopting love on you. God's adopting love is specific. It is on us. Not on the world at large. It's on us. Secondly, God's adopting love is a special love. It's a special love. What kind of love is this? What class of love does this belong to? Well, notice in our verse, it's the kind of love that moved God to adopt some as His own children, to call some His children. It's a special kind of love. God doesn't call everyone His children, in this, His child in this sense. It's true that God loves all men. We've studied that before. Just as God commands us to love our enemies, God loves His enemies. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, listen, your Father in heaven loves his enemies. And he describes how. He says, think about it. God causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does good to his enemies, and that shows his love for all mankind. You need to love your enemies as well. That's Jesus' point. So God loves all people. But listen carefully, that doesn't mean that God loves all people in the same way and with the same intensity. Verse 1 makes that very clear. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. God loves His own with a unique, special, eternal, adopting love. We're often identified as those God uniquely loves. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, and listen to how he describes them, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. He wasn't saying the rest of the people living in Rome didn't, didn't know the, or weren't loved by God in some regard, but he's saying, you believers, you are the unique object of God's love. The same thing in second, or rather 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, brethren beloved by God. And God's special love for His own is always moving toward a specific goal. And that goal was adopting us as His own children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus with this amazing long sentence that begins in verse 3 and runs all the way down through verse 14, just one sentence in the Greek text, but he begins this way in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ.'" He says, the Father is the one who has initiated this plan of redemption. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to describe the Father's role in the plan of redemption. Now, you understand that all the members of the Trinity act together in all that they do. We have one God in three persons. So, it's not that one person in the Trinity does something and, and the other members don't contribute at all, but rather what the Scriptures are clear is that one member of the Trinity takes the lead in certain activities. And This is what the Father did in the plan of redemption. Notice verse 4, just as He, that goes back to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we're talking about the Father, just as the Father chose us. The word chose means to select out from a larger group. That's what He did. He He selected us from a larger group in Christ, and He did so without reference to us before the foundation of the world. In other words, his choice, his selection was unconditional. wasn't conditioned on anything in you or me. And then he says, why? He chose us to what end, to what goal? And he gives three ends here. First of all, personal holiness, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
God chose us, selected us to make us holy, to make us like His Son. Verse 6 gives the third of those goals, and that is God's glory to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved. But go back to the second goal God had in mind in choosing us. The end of verse 4, in love He predestined us. That is, He predetermined our destiny. And what was the destiny He predetermined us to? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. I love the last part of verse 5, according to the kind intention of His will. Literally, according to His good pleasure. In other words, God in love predetermined to adopt you, but He didn't do so grudgingly. He did so with His whole heart, with delight, with joy. What an amazing truth. Why? Why did God set His love on you and me? The answer here is because He had decided to adopt us. Now, many of you here this morning, you get this in a way the rest of us don't. You get it in a unique and personal way. If, if you are adopted or if you've adopted children, you understand what it means to select out of a group a child on whom you will set your love and whom you will adopt into your family. Folks, that is exactly what God did for you. If you've passed the test, if you're a Christian, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, that is what God did in your case. He has chosen you for adoption, to adopt you as his own child. That's the reason he set his love on you. I like the way Lloyd-Jones says it. He says, we are what we are, not because of our goodness, not because of our lives, not because of anything in us. It all comes from the love of God, that everlasting, inscrutable love, whatever made him look upon us. You ever ask yourself that question? Whatever made him look at me, choose me? Lloyd-Jones says, why, we don't know. It's amazing. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners and opposed and aliens, it was then he did it. We are beloved of God. God loves all mankind, but that's not the kind of love John's talking about in verse 1. It's God's unique, special love by which God calls sinners, those who were His enemies, now His children. Thirdly, God's adopting love is a supreme love. It's a supreme love. It's of the highest quality. It's the greatest love. The Greek word translated how great in verse 1 only occurs seven times in the New Testament. It literally means of what kind or of what class. In the New Testament, when it is used, it normally implies being amazed, being filled with wonder. There's a sense of awe and admiration when you see something that's truly amazing. You remember when the disciples were in the boat there on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was asleep, the storm came and was raging and the ship was going to sink and Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind and the wave and suddenly it all goes deathly quiet. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Christian's DNA. Tom will have part four for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? 
Well, Tom, we enjoyed the study in today's program about the doctrine of adoption. But what's the personal application? Why is it so important for every believer to understand it? Because in the end, the Apostle John is writing not merely to explain what adoption is, but so that every true believer will live in light of that reality. John wants each of us who know Jesus Christ to stand in awe of God's love that moved him to adopt us as his sons or daughters. We have to remember, we need nothing, we've done nothing to earn or deserve our adoption. The fact is, God's own great love is so amazing that he is willing to save rebellious sinners and then bring those sinners into his family, those redeemed sinners, as his own sons and daughters. Nobody is the exception to that. The doctrine of adoption is all of God's grace and all of his love, and he wants us, rightly, to be amazed and to stand in wonder of what he, our Father, has bestowed on us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.